Hello, this is Thanasi Kambanis, and welcome to episode 22 of the TCF World Podcast. On the first half of our episode today, we'll be talking with Maria Fantapier from the International Crisis Group about what to expect from the new government that's been formed in Iraq. After the break, we'll be talking about Syrian reconstruction with Joseph Daher from the University of Lausanne. First, I'm joined by Maria Fantapier, a senior advisor for the International Crisis Group. She's been researching Iraq for many years through a lot of changes and a lot of periods. Today, I want to ask her to help us think about the latest developments with the long-awaited formation of a new government and to help us set the table to understand what, if anything, we should expect in the next stage. Now that Iraq has come out of its war with ISIS and after six long months of negotiations has formed a government. Maria, to start with, tell us what we should make of the new government's leadership, the president, the prime minister, and the speaker of parliament. What's the significance of this new formation? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And, um, well, I think it's significant that the government, uh, the impasse over the the cellmate, over the government formation, um, is sort of uh, in a way to be resolved. This is already a good start because, I mean, just to remind our audience that uh, um, in the last months since the May 2018 parliamentary election, we were in a situation of stalemate where uh, different uh, um, political factions, they tried actually to form the largest bloc, which will lead to the government for me, to, to the point to the government formation, but did, this didn't actually happen. And one of the main obstacles that actually prevented the government formation, or at least the appointment of the prime minister and, uh, and, and the president, was also this competition between the United States and, uh, uh, and, uh, and the Iranians, uh, which played out very much within Iraq and which polarized parts of the political leadership in Iraq in one um, uh, in opposite hand. Uh, well, so, I mean, in the end, was the resolution another form of stalemate and tie that, that as, as usual, neither Iran nor the United States gets its first choice uh, both of them are more or less satisfied with the result and the overall amount of influence that both countries have remains the same? Look, this, it was what you described, it was more a um, pre-2000, uh, May, pre-May 2011 situation. I think that uh, uh, during the course of the fight against ISIS and when uh, the um, U.S. re-engaged in Iraq because of the terrorist threat, Uh, that was posed to the country and globally, uh, definitely there was a sort of uh, uh, balance between the two two, uh, main powers. But also it was a different time when the Obama administration uh, really uh, tried to at least find a sort of workable um, um, uh, relation with the Iranians, so at least a coexistence, what we call a coexistence within, within Iraq. Uh, so the Iranians, both the Iranians and the U.S. supported the fight against ISIS and the government that was in place in Iraq, led by Haider al-Abadi, it was a government, as you stated, of um, where that balance, uh, difficult balance, was at least um, put was in place. Now I think we have a different situation, where actually um, 
with the after the election we have a situation where definitely the can, the the president um, and the prime minister are uh, very presentable figures to the western audience however we have to see who will be appointed to the main and most sensitive um, portfolio especially in the security sector and i suppose that this will actually go uh, to very much pro-Iranian uh, figures, or at least that these security um, ministries will be very much dominated by, by um, uh, Iranian, uh, pro-Iranian uh, um, political forces in Iraq. So I think in a nutshell, uh, the U.S. for the time being, I mean, the, 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 let's say that the competition is not... Or the, the U.S. wins the front office and Iran wins the, the, the back, back end. The back end. Um, although, I mean, this is not yet ended. I mean, we have to see how the government formation will play Should out. Should we also be expecting in the coming phase more confrontation? I mean, we've heard for years now uh, the suggestion from Washington that they that, that, that the United States will start trying to more actively foil Iranian interests in, in Iraq, use Iraq as a, as a battleground on which to uh, roll back or provoke or challenge Iran. And this is the kind of talk that I think alarms people who are interested in Iraq's stability, right? The, yeah. the sort of nightmare well, there scenario. Is, there is another type of people who say that the Iranians will use Iraq in order to put pressure on the U.S. So, um, and I think that uh, these two versions, which are very specular to some extent, they are uh, meaningful because it, 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 I mean, it means that uh, uh, each one, each side thinks that it has probably an upper hand. I think that the, this administration um, uh, it really wants to show that it has uh, um, uh, a strong uh, influence within the Iraqi political uh, scene and that it is able to use that influence in an anti-Iranian fashion. However, I think that their escalatory tone against the Iranians, it's uh, more of a tone, but rather their influence within the government is still to be built in. I mean, we have seen, to, to give you an example, that once the U.S. during the last months, they were trying to put pressure on Sunni factions and on Kurdish factions in order to support another government led by Hader al-Abadi, this didn't succeed. This is, I, to me, it was a counterproof that uh, there is a big gap between the tone of the, this administration use and the uh, um, uh, sort of image that they want to actually project to the outside world on how much they can use Iraq as a platform to counter Iran and the actual political leverage that they have inside the country. Right. Uh, and turning more towards Iraq as subject rather than Iraq as object, uh, for me, one of the disappointments, although expected, of this process is that in the end, we get another unity government where every single party has a, has a slice and there's no actual opposition and there's no political difference. The, the, the factions are all just about dividing up the pie and not about articulating some approach to solving the cataclysmic governance challenges that, that Iraq faces. Uh, is, is, that, is that the right way to understand this government and how, how should we expect it to govern uh, on, on the key issues right. of security and just running the country? Right. I think that we could, I mean, we are at the point, at the point in Iraq history uh, where uh, we felt that after um, uh, a body term, we needed to have um, a transition 
from that uh, system of muhasasa that is the redistribution of, of of position according to sect and ethnic belonging um, a sort of spoil system a, a spoil system a spoil that system. Uh, by default also uh, was the way in which iraq was governed uh, uh, since the us invasion to another type of um, political system where actually there will be um, uh, accountability, there will be uh, insti the institutions of oversight would actually work to be to, as an oversight, and where also the um, there will be cross sectarian, cross ethnic alliances. Um, the debate has been there, but as always in politics, we cannot expect that the transition will just happen from one day to another. So I would expect that these four years that are coming now, they will be years in which there will be a sort of mixed and hybrid form between a bit of the past, so a bit of situation where you have actually um, a sort of um, a, a sort of within I mean, a sort of alliances within the same on the sectarian and ethnic belonging, the basis of sectarian belonging and um, uh, sect belonging and ethnic belonging. As well as, however, on certain other issues, you might have cross-sectarian and cross-ethnic alliances uh, forming within the, um, the government or within the parliament also. So we will be a bit, bit in between the two, I think. While we can hope that probably, depending on how the regional situation will evolve, in the next, in the following four years, we will see more substantial changes to happen. As for the institutional oversight, such as the presence of an opposition, I think that there are some political forces, such as the Sadrs, for instance, who have put place the reform process and in improvement in governance at the top of their agenda. It's very it will be very difficult for them not to deliver on them. Well, it feels like that commitment is much more rhetorical than, than substantial by the Sadrs, right? They, uh, they, they insist that, that reform uh, the reform be at the top of the government agenda, but they also went back on their promise to go into opposition if they didn't get the prime ministry. Uh, and also the, the discourse about technocrats is, I think, disingenuous at best, right? The, the idea of, of uh, putting in independent technocrats is often, seems to me, a, a, another way of, of saying uh, we want weak figures that we can politically bully because they won't have a, a, a sort of basis of their own to, to, to resist us. Well, if we have to speak about the Sadrists, I will not necessarily agree with that. I think that there was there, there are factions within the Sadrists who genuinely believe in the fact that uh, the country needs uh, to improve its governance because otherwise there will be... Um, an uprising happening or there will be uh, increasing problem uh, in governing the society and on the one hand and therefore there is also a need to put people at the right in the right positions that I mean the country in, in within the institutional framework of, uh, of, of, of Iraq you had always this appointment on the based on the political affiliation which have not actually um, necessarily placed officials or technocrats in the right positions and this has led to a dysfunctional governance and to a lot of corruption so on and so forth so i think that there is a part of the southern movements especially those one who are generally actually connecting to the civil society secular components who saw 
once they got so many so much success with this last election the possibility of really making strides and improvements and depoliticizing the bureaucracy of Iraq uh, by placing technocrats in this position so you think that's that's feasibly yeah. on the table i mean that, that, no. that Oh. It is not that that and that you are right, but I don't think it's that. But, but that, you think they will put it really put it on the table that there will be a genuine effort made. There was there was a genuine effort to put on the table technocrats, but you are right in the fact that uh, they themselves were probably a bit politically naive in thinking that that could happen because you cannot place technocrats as a head of portfolios and think that those uh, heads or main senior members of political parties who have been um, ruling the country since 2003 will just sit and watch and accept. Um, so I think there would have been uh, better to have a more of a pragmatic approach where you understand that in order to be successful, you need also to compromise with those heavyweights within the Iraqi political system, that you cannot just uh, think that this people that have been so much entrenched in the economy of the country, in the security sector of the country, will just leave the scene to um, to technocrats which have no political affiliation. Uh, the, the wisdom or, or, or balance that's emerged in the Iraqi system is exactly that, right? That, that no one's strong enough to be the next Saddam, uh, no, no single party can, can fully dominate, uh, uh, but of course... By the same token, no single party is going to be willing to relinquish whatever foothold it's gained, whether they have some kind of sovereign security ministry or some kind of cash cow piece of the state that they can use to extract uh, resources. And my fear when I look at this is that uh, you have a sort of Lebanon on steroids, a, a, a spoil system uh, that is so profitable for every single faction that has managed to get a grip on part of it that none of them will ever let go of, of their their real estate within the, the power structure. Well, I'm not sure I uh, fully agree with that because I think that this was has been the case for several years in Iraq, but there has been also uh, increasingly forces which had political forces who had who had to take a position against that establishment, that sort of way of doing politics in Iraq. Parts of the Sadists were um, going in that direction. In Kurdish politics, you had movements of opposition to the main established party who actually also um, uh, called for this type of, um, uh, of, of new way of doing politics in Iraq. And this, I think it's happening also because there is a push bottom up from the street. I mean, uh, the fact that you have had uh, a very strong uh, mobilization, uh, a movement, a protest movements, uh, which have also started, uh, um, I mean, which already had started back in the days of the general Arab Spring, but also it sort of reinvigorated also during the, the fight against ISIS. And the fact that you had the chance to have a figure such as Muqtada Sadr, who was this sort of unique leader that could merge uh, the figure of a charismatic cleric plus also um, an, uh, a politician at the same time, but also um, a street leaders for the a leader for the street. I mean, it has been able this to channel that 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 call, you know, from and and to bridge that link between the street and the political leadership. And I think that now uh, um, uh, the 
th that type of politics that just remain within the closed door of the palace of the green zone, it can survive, it will survive, but also it needs to compromise with those street movements represented by this other party. It cannot just afford to continue to carry on. Well, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts. This is uh, Maria Fantapier uh, from the International Crisis Group. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you for having me, Thanasi. Iran, Russia, and China are taking advantage of the American withdrawal from the world stage. These three nations are building alternatives to the Cold War consensus and are working together to resist Western efforts to isolate Iran. The Century Foundation's Dina Esfandiari, along with Ariana Tabatabai, examine the current status of cooperation between those three nations in their new book, Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China. The Century Foundation will be hosting a book launch in New York on Wednesday, November 14th at 8 a.m. Our offices are located at 1 Whitehall Street in Lower Manhattan. Please visit our website at www.tcf.org for more information about the launch event, about Dina Svandiari's research, and about the Century Foundation's work on peace and security. Welcome back to the TCF World Podcast. This is Thanasi Kambanis, and I'm talking with Joseph Daher from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, Joseph. Uh, you've been working on some, some interesting research looking at reconstruction, post-war reconstruction uh, in Syria, and I think what we can learn from some other cases. Uh, so tell us what, what it is uh, you, you've been trying to figure out. Well, first of all, I think uh, we should be clear that we're not yet in a post-war situation in Syria. And even though reconstruction plans have been put on the table in Syria by the government, uh, only one case of reconstruction is occurring today uh, in the country. It's uh, in the banlieue of Damascus. Uh, so not in Homs, for example? There, there have been, uh, for example, plans in Homs to uh, the municipality just announced the rebuilding of some areas, free, free particular zones that uh, suffered uh, massively from destructions. Um, and in the case of Damascus, it's basically Marota City. We're obviously talking... That's one, just one of the few suburbs that's been... Exactly. ...experienced large-scale destruction. Uh, when I'm talking about this kind of large reconstruction plan, it's not, you know, houses or, you know, small areas and neighborhoods. We're talking about important, uh, significant, you know, areas in terms of, in terms of, if you want, volumes, etc. So what, um, what, are, what are you actually trying... What, what is your research? Uh, through the reconstruction, actually, we can see how the regime is consolidating uh, its power politically, economically, and militarily. We're seeing that, for example, in the case of Marota City, all the major, nearly all the investors, six out of seven, are businessmen linked uh, to the regime, such as uh, Rami Makhlouf or Mazen Tarazi, Samir Foz, etc. Um, and also, uh, we've seen in past uh, experiences, for example, in Lebanon and Iraq, it was also uh, an important tool to consolidate, you know, a particular, um, if you want, ruling class, if we can call it like this, for example, in the case of Rafik al-Hariri in Lebanon in the, in the 90s. Um, 
and also it's also a process where you have a deepening uh, if you want on neoliberal policies of privatization of the economy for example in 2015 um, the syrian government announced the third generation of uh, its economic policy after the 70s and 80s which were and the 90s the so-called you know uh, public sector economy and to 2000 it was the social economic market and today now it's the Tasharuki Wataniye, which is basically the national participation. And it's opening all sectors of the society except the oil sector to private, um, to the private sector, basically being investments, uh, owner, ownership to the private sector. So this is the kind of change I'm, 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 I'm interested in, in what you can tell us about, because, okay, it's no surprise that in Syria, as anywhere, uh, a regime is going to use, you know, any new major economic opportunity to strengthen its allies and disenfranchise its enemies. That's to be expected. Uh, but it, it seems like we're, we're witnessing significant policy changes with long range implications for what Syria, how power will be arranged in Syria and how life will be for Syrians uh, that are coming under the guise of reconstruction. Uh, one that, that I think has made it into public view is uh, the, these, these laws about property, mm. which seem to suggest there'll be large-scale confiscation of property from private citizens, including those who might have been more likely to oppose the government, and that that property will be redistributed to, presumably, companies controlled by loyalists. What, so what kinds of mechanisms are, 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 becoming, are, are, are becoming visible uh, and what do they tell us about changing uh, natures of regime power, changing relationships to communities? Who who's going to be allowed to live where? What what can we? What are we? What's what are we starting to be able to see? So, if we take the case of uh, Maruta City, which is basically tell us happening, where where is Maruta City and what's happening there? And in, in, uh, in it's of in uh, it's uh, basically um, you have two main areas and. Uh, Banlieue of Damascus, as we call it, uh, the suburbs of Damascus. Su suburbs of Damascus, sorry, uh, which is the the first plan is Maruta City, Basatina Razi, uh, this kind of areas, and after you have the second reconstruction plan, which is called Basilia City. And Maruta City started beginning of uh, two thousand seventeen uh, in this uh, in these areas, and what we're witnessing is basically a a change in the socio-economic engineering. Uh, basically, uh, these areas were mostly inhabited by lower middle classes, people, and it was informal areas, um, and very close by to the center of the city. So even before the uprising, these areas were targeted by rich entrepreneurs, real real estate entrepreneurs, to um, to to build, if you want, new real estate. Constructions. Who was living there before? Uh, it was mostly lower middle class uh, people that came in the past decades from rural areas that increasingly started to work in Damascus. And what we're witnessing, you know, is that the, the construction plans in Maruta City will be at mostly uh, to provide, you know, the highest classes of Syria. So uh, this is a displacement of uh, politically weak new arrivals to the capital and they're going to be displaced and and what who will come in will be wealthy 
regime loyalists? Uh, mostly, mostly not, not necessarily. If, uh, I mean, it's it, the main issue is social economic engineering. Uh, so just getting pushing out the poor and bringing exactly. in exactly money, uh, which has obviously you know these areas were hotbeds of the, the uprisings, um, and it's a way to uh, and the people that were living in these areas were not given any kind of alternative in terms of housing. And this came out even, you know, on uh, on national television, you know, uh, of the, the Assad regime, you know, people complaining about the lack of any kind of compensations, um, alternative housing, etc. So what we're witnessing is to have so particular areas, this is particularly, it's an area you can reach quite easily, the center of Damascus, being inhabited by socio-economic classes that will not challenge uh, the regime, which uh, most probably, you know, the highest uh, uh, sectors of the society, and then also to inc to push you know, to promote also investment from outside. But until today, most of the investment have been made by uh, local uh, Syrian business actors. I had assumed that the the large-scale reconstruction will mostly be impossible for just for lack of financing uh where the, the if this is underway where's the money coming from no definitely you're totally right it's a there's a lack of money in generally speaking the cost of reconstruction is estimated to nearly today 400 billion dollars um when you you see the national budget is five billions in syria today the gdp has uh, you know has was six, a bit more than 60 billion before the uprising, it's now around 12 to 15 billion dollars. So there's a lack of money also in the private and the national banks, uh, around a couple of billions dollars. So you have a lack of money within Syria. And the private investors don't have the, enough money to rebuild these whole areas. And when we, when we see at the, the, the allies of the regime, Russia and Iran, are ready to invest, you know, in particular sectors of the society, or especially benefit from the national resources, natural resources of the regime, such as oil, phosphate, etc. But their economy is not enough at all to, you know, to, to rebuild Syria. Uh, with all the respect of Spain, but Russia has the economy of uh, of Spain, and Iran has huge social economic problems. I, um, I imagine those states will be able and willing to do small scale things and get. Perhaps they'll rebuild housing in parts of Damascus that are going to be profitable, right? But these will not be tens of thousands of dwellings for displaced people. We're talking about small developments in the old city or maybe in, in you know, some of these suburbs. But we have, what, 10 million displaced people in the country. This, so uh, the, the scale of, of the problem is, is mind-boggling. Uh, as you were saying, half of the people, population in Syria is displaced internally or outside of the country. Um, and uh, Iran is mostly investing, you know, in kind of today electricity companies, uh, rebuilding certain areas, some schools, hospitals, Russia. But it's, it's a very small scale. What we're talking about is huge, uh, huge total destruction. Even an ally such as China has only promised $2 billion in terms of investment in the economy uh, in Syria. Um, and so, uh, as, as you were mentioning, there's a lack of funding. So in place, I mean, I'm also thinking of the, I mean, I was in Homs some years mm -hmm. ago and saw the, the, the apocalyptic 
destruction in these abandoned areas, and then I've I've seen documentation of I mean just thinking of Aleppo. Yeah. Uh, is, are, is are those destroyed areas just going to sit as they are destroyed and uninhabitable for years to come, like Germany did for a decade after World War Two? I think it's also a policy of the regime to choose who's going to come back or not. We have to say, stay stated very clearly. What I mean is that, for example, the areas that were um, there was a plan to reconstruct some certain areas of Aleppo. Ten out of fifteen of these zones were pro-regime areas that had suffered much less destruction. If you want, now. those are the ones that will get repaired. Exactly. First, they had the priorities. Eastern Aleppo will take years, decades, but it's not a priority of the regime. We must be very clear uh, on this. Unless, I mean, the, the, because one of the things you, you your work and I think others have suggested as well is that some areas that were uh, destroyed because of, of rebellion might well be rebuilt, but not for the people who used to live there. Uh, you know, that, so so I, I can imagine as well in Homs, this was a, a, a live theory that the government had a lot of plans to take areas that used to be full of uh, suspect uh, populations and yes. they're excellent, you know, excellent real estate. Otherwise, they'll rebuild them for their own people. Definitely, you're totally right. And what is interesting to see both in Homs and Damascus, the areas that are now targeted by the reconstruction, uh, are both areas that were targeted prior to 2011. They also for reconst- uh, for development? Exactly. Real estate development. So, um, And this was one of the reasons why the people of Homs, you know, the first uh, slogans they raised at the beginning of the uprising was to, to kick out the governor uh, who wanted to do, you know, to kick out local population, mostly uh, lower middle classes. In the vast majority, they were Sunnis from these areas to promote, you know, real real estate construction plans for high social classes, socioeconomic classes from diverse uh, communities. So, uh, as you were saying, this is why I'm saying this kind of uh, socioeconomic engineering in this reconstruction plan. And it's also a way to punish, you know, former um, uh, population, local population that raised against the regime, or a way to discipline them, uh, saying, uh, you, you mentioned law number 10, uh, regarding That's the, the property law. Indeed. And Decree 66 that were uh, based in, uh, in Damascus. These are laws to discipline these population in saying, if, you, uh, if there's any form of dissent, we are able to confiscate your properties through legal means. And so it's a mean of pressure as well. We have to understand it like this. This is why I was saying in the beginning, reconstruction is not only about you know, rebuilding some building is about a control uh, that is political, economic, and military. That's it's very interesting, and and I think the I mean the Assad regime uh, has been very strategic throughout this war, and, and by by that I mean uh, they bet more than other actors in the conflict uh, have come up with a long term vision of what they want to what they want to keep. Uh, from from the way Syria was before and uh, and what they want to change and it's a very I think dark dark vision where you know from political decisions like refugees that they hope won't return and that they work carefully to, to discourage from returning to things like you're describing where the, they, they hope to refashion the geography and economy of the country in, in a way that that consolidates uh, 
regime survival. Indeed, and in addition to this, you can see as well with the policy of preventing some groups of returning uh, from the threat of you know being sent to the military, uh, while reconciliation agreements you're seeing you know people being arrested, former FSA forces, militants that used to um, like so they were seeking a, collabor- a form of you know understanding with the regime through this recon- so-called reconciliation agreement have been arrested. After this, we've seen, we've seen cases like this in Aghouta and Dara'a. So, uh, as uh, you know, the Bashar Assad last year said, uh, as Syria has become, or is will, he, he was willing to say that, you know, Syria has become more homogeneous. What he means is that the principle of loyalty is the key issue for the Assad regime. It's about loyalty. Only wanting to, you know, to have, you know, uh, kind of uh, a servile. Uh, people while no dissent is accepted. And I think it's going to get worse. There's probably a better term than reconstruction to use because reconstruction mm-hmm. suggests a rebuilding of what used to be there and a return. And in fact, what you describe and what I think is pretty clear is uh, a quite a different uh, new reality. Joseph Dahir, thank you so much uh, for coming thank on the you. podcast. Thank you. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation, a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.